Section 52 of Shakespeare Identified This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary in Arkansas. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Appendix 1. The Tempest. Part 1. Quote, I do not discern these marks of long practice in the dramatic art and the full maturity of the poet's genius which some have discovered in The Tempest, end quote, by Hunter. Its place amongst the plays. Although, as was inevitable, difficulties have arisen in its place in the course of our investigations, the surprising thing has been that they have proved so few and unformidable. Up to the present, the greatest obstacle is that presented by one play, The Tempest. If we pass and review the different plays of Shakespeare in order of the dates assigned to them, we find that this one occupies a very remarkable position. First of all, we notice that the great popular comedies are all attributed to the earlier part of Shakespeare's career, and the best-known tragedies, with the exception of Romeo and Juliet, to the latter part. These tragedies culminate in Hamlet and Othello in the early years of what may be called the tragedy period, and taper off with such mixed compositions as the tragedies of Coriolanus, Timon, Pericles, and Cymbeline. The great dramatist is supposed to have paid his final respects to the dramatic world he had adorned for so many years, in a play which another man had been called in to finish, the composite and somewhat inharmonious play of Henry the Eighth. Then we have The Tempest, sandwiched in between the group which contains such a tragedy as Pericles and the nondescript history play Henry the Eighth. From this point of view, it looks like a play that had wandered away and fallen into bad company. Its natural associate, A Midsummer Night's Dream, is separated from it by almost as wide an interval as the Shakespearean period will permit. Under any theory of authorship, this work occupies an anomalous position. To the views we are now urging, it presents a real and serious difficulty. The only formidable obstacle so far encountered, and therefore demanding special attention. Date of Writing it will be noticed that it is one of the twenty plays printed for the first time in the 1623 folio edition. Although printed then for the first time, there is abundant evidence that a number of these plays were in existence many years before. In relation to The Tempest, the only authoritative fact seems to be that a play of this name was amongst those performed to celebrate the marriage of the Princess Elizabeth to the Elector Frederick in 1613. There existed, however, a forged reference to it connecting it with the year 1611, and as the 1613 reference almost pushes it outside the Shakespearean period proper, the forged reference seems like an attempt, for some reason, to bring it more within the period. The circumstances are certainly suspicious. There is no record of its having been registered, and no indication of its having been in print before 1623. Facts like these, when connected with such a play as Timon of Athens, do not strike us as being at all remarkable. In connection with a stage favorite like The Tempest, they are not what we should have expected, whoever the author of the play may have been. It bears more heavily upon our own theories, however, than upon the Stratfordian view. 
it seems incredible that it could have been written and staged in the early shakespearean period without some trace of period and it is very improbable that such a play should have been written and allowed to remain unstaged for so many years seeing that the staging element in it is more pronounced than in any other play attributed to shakespeare contemporary events in the play in addition to all this it is held to contain certain traces of contemporary events in the early years of james the first reign and even to be in part indebted to a pamphlet published in sixteen ten this fact by itself presents no insurmountable difficulty seeing that the interpolation of other men's work is quite a recognized feature of the later shakespeare plays but taken along with its more modern character and what seems to us the less elizabethan quality of its diction it appears to justify the assumption that the work as a whole belongs to the date to which it has been assigned we have endeavoured to present the case in respect to the tempest with all the adverse force with which it bears upon the theory of edward de vere being shakespeare and must confess that it appears at first blush as if the tempest were threatening the shipwreck of all our hopes and labours in the cause of shakespearean authorship alternative dates the somewhat anomalous position occupied by the play has however already given rise to doubts respecting the accuracy of the date assigned to it the first writer of eminence to raise these doubts was hunter who is described in the variorum shakespeare as one of the most learned and exact of commentators he also has been the first to question its title to the high praise which it is fashionable to lavish upon this composition the words which we quote at the head of this chapter sir george greenwood too has raised doubts as to whether the masking performance is from the hand of shakespeare other critics and commentators have given attention to the question of its date and although the great majority confirm the later date which is usually ascribed to it sixteen ten to sixteen thirteen we furnish now some authorities for an earlier production hunter fifteen ninety six knight sixteen o two to sixteen o three dice and staunton after sixteen o three Carl Ailes, 1604. There exists, therefore, some Shakespearean authority for an earlier date, and also for the intervention of a strange hand. Nevertheless, we have not felt convinced by these authorities, and have, therefore, been indisposed to take refuge behind their findings. The reader who, in spite of the contents of this chapter, may continue to cling to the old estimate of the play may at any rate find comfort in the dates furnished above contrast with other comedies we must now ask the reader who we assume is willing to take some trouble to get at the truth of the matter to first read carefully some of the earlier comedies like love's labour's lost a midsummer night's dream and as you like it when he has read these works appreciatively and has got a sense as it were of shakespeare's force of intellect and wit the packed significance of his lines his teeming imagery the fecundity of his ideas on everything pertaining to the multiple forces of human nature his incisive glances into human motives his subtle turns of expression the precision and refinement of his distinctions the easy flow of his diction the vocal qualities of his word combinations all these well-known shakespearean characteristics 
let him then turn and read the tempest thinking not so much of the broad situations presented by the stage play but looking for that finer literary and poetical material that constitute the true shakespeare work and he will probably experience a much greater disappointment than he anticipated take for example the second scene in the first act the dialogue between prospero and miranda especially where the former is relating his misfortunes to the latter it seems all right no doubt on a first reading or on hearing it repeated on the stage it explains a particular situation lucidly in bold outline making no special demands upon the mind of the reader or hearer and for those who wish to push on with the business of the play and see how things work out it is just the thing wanted one does not however feel a great desire to read it over again immediately so as to drink more deeply of its poetic charm nor would any one seriously memorize its phrases for the purpose of enriching his own resources of expression literary quality the situation was however eminently suitable for fine poetic treatment yet the prosy character of the narration broken by prospero's harping on the question of whether miranda was attending to him or not makes one wonder what there is in it to justify the attempt at blank verse we use the word attempt advisedly for a close examination of it will reveal a larger proportion of false quantities and non-rhythmic lines than can be found in an equal space in the best shakespearean verse indeed throughout the play there is a general thinness so far as first-class literary matter and the figurative language which distinguishes the best poetry are concerned our first task is to ascertain whether what there is possesses true shakespearean characteristics its chief passage judging this point not by its worst but what is accepted as its best passages we shall not attempt to select what may appear to us as the best but take the one passage in the tempest that has been singled out for special notice by others Quote, these our actors as i foretold you were all spirits and are melted into air into thin air and like the baseless fabric of this vision the cloud-capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself yea all which it inherit shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind if our ideas of shakespeare's style have been formed from study in this particular play the passage will doubtless seem quite shakespearean not otherwise however before discussing it as a whole however we ask the reader to notice the word and at the end of the second line as it connects itself with an important point which we shall presently have to consider to what then do these lines own their popularity we know to what a speech of portia's or a meditation of jacques or a soliloquy of hamlet's owes its popularity all these great shakespearean utterances owe their power not to the mere grandiloquence that fits them for perorations but to their direct appeal to the human heart and mind which form their own subject matter cosmic theories come and go but the fundamental constitution of human nature the nature of man's inward experiences sufferings and struggles remains substantially and eternally the same 
it is because shakespeare's theme is ever this enduring spiritual matter that his influence suffers no waning but grows with the centuries negative philosophy in the passage we have just quoted there is not a touch of shakespeare's special interest it is simple cosmic philosophy and as such it is the most dreary negativism that was ever put into high-sounding words shakespeare's soul was much too large for mere negation he was essentially positivist when he handles his own theme of human nature he expounded what he saw and felt always holding the subject down to its own realities conditioned by its own essential relationships in modern terms he was an experimentalist or to use a clumsier though more accurate word an experientialist on the other hand he was no mere empiricist his was a vision that looked before and after a prophetic soul dreaming of things to come recognizing the limitations of human vision his mind could yet take in the thought of the great unknown that stretched beyond the range of immediate faculties but he filled it in with no mere negative however undetermined his positive may have been there are more things in heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy stolen thunder the philosophy of the passage we have quoted from the tempest is such as we might conceive hamlet attributing to horatio and not that of hamlet himself nor do we believe that it owes its popularity to the outlook it represents it is rather the awe-inspiring vastness of the conception and its high-sounding phrases that have won for the passage its place in english rhetorical literature neither in theme nor philosophy however does it seem to us to be shakespearean even the terms of the passage are not original to the writer of this much belauded comedy but are clearly suggested by a passage in a play written in the last years of the sixteenth century see valorium shakespeare their value as evidence of shakespearean authorship is therefore negligible when however we come to the closing sentence of the passage we are assured by readers of shakespeare that here at least we have the work of the master Quote, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep the stuff of dreams here we find ourselves faced with one of the chief difficulties in discussing shakespeare namely dogmatic assertion based upon literary feeling or instinct but offering no fixed standard of measurement by which the truth of the claim may be tested although then we are assured that these words are eminently shakespearean we make bold to say that they appear to us as unshakespearean as any utterance with which shakespeare has been credited when we read that all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players we feel that the writer's mind in dealing with life is occupied with clear and definite conceptions which he imparts vividly to his readers by the crispness and precision of the terms he employs when the mind of hamlet works upon the great unknown the sleep of death and the possible experiences after death what dreams may come we have the same definiteness of conception the same precise relationship of language to thought we may think that he stops short that he might have given us more but we have no uncertainty respecting the part he has given 
we move with him in the plane of realities alike of life and death and when he deals with what he does not know he knows what it is he does not know if then this mental clarity this definiteness and precision alike of thought and expression are not dominant notes of shakespeare we must confess that our understanding of his work has yet to begin muddled metaphysics compare now from this point of view the characteristic utterances of shakespeare on life and death just quoted with the lines previously cited from the tempest we may safely challenge any one to produce another passage from the whole of shakespeare that will match with the latter in metaphysical vagueness abandon for a moment the practice of squeezing into or squeezing out of these words some philosophical significance and attempt the simpler task of attaching a merely elementary english meaning to the terms and placing these meanings into some kind of coherent relationship to one another we are stuff the stuff of dreams dreams are made on or of life rounded with a sleep we will not say that shakespeare never gives us such nuts to crack but we can say with full confidence that they are not characteristically shakespearean so far as we can get hold of the general drift of the metaphors it seems that the present life of man is likened to dreams we are such stuff etc and that he brings his dreams to an end by going to sleep in common with shakespeare and the majority of mankind however we are accustomed to associate our dreams with our actual times of sleep end of section fifty two part one